saxophonist Jeff Rupert spent the early years of his career playing, touring, and recording with everyone from Maynard Ferguson and Mel Torme to Diane Schur and Benny Carter. While continuing his busy performing schedule, since 1995, Rupert has served as Director of Jazz Studies at the University of Central Florida, where he is committed to inspiring young jazz musicians and help them not only develop musically, but learn the skills to develop a lasting career, a conversation often skipped in university programs. Jeff Rupert and I recorded the following conversation in Orlando, Florida last month. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I commented to Jeff that at a time when many jazz musicians say there's less work and support for their music, Orlando seems to be a jazz-loving town. The University of Central Florida is... uh... It's a big school. I think we're at about 70,000 students. And, of course, the, the quality is high as well. It's an innovative school, and it's a very young school. And so when I got here, uh, we had an NPR station, and it evolved to an NPR jazz station. And then as the jazz program grew, we started making records. I said, well, when we make records, we really just don't want to make records and pass them out to mom and dad and aunts and uncles. We want to show the students all the ancillary revenue streams that exist in the music business. So let's create a record label. The bottom line is the higher-ups at the university said, go, make it happen. So it's been a environment where if you have a good idea, you're told, go ahead, make it happen. So that's one of the beauties of being a young school. And in the, so the last 25 years, there's been tremendous growth. So now we're the only school, I believe, in the United States that has a 24-7 NPR jazz station, WCF, and a professional jazz studies degree. So it's really exciting. And there's a lot of ancillary work for our students. And musicians sometimes forget, older musicians, that young musicians want to just play. They want to play. <laughs> Imagine uh, that, right? No, it's interesting. You're making me think because I had a musician when I was in my 20s ask me, and he was older, and he was at, going in one of those troughs, which we go through a feeling pretty negative about the business. And he said, why are you doing this? Meaning, why are you playing stride piano? And I said, because I love it. And he got this faraway look on his face, like he remembered when he did it because he loved it. And he'd been pretty beaten down. And that's an interesting thing that you say that. It's so it's so important to me, Judy. Uh, a good friend of mine, world-class musician, was pining, like, how? why are we – he doesn't teach at UCF. He's a, a great world-class drummer and teaches at a, another university. But he's mm. like, I'm conflicted. Why are we offering these degrees? Because my sons are not doing well. They graduated with music degrees and they're not doing well. And I mentioned that to my dean, who's a great percussionist. And he he had the most sage advice. He said, you know, we all went through that door when we were younger. Why would we dare close that door on somebody else? Mm. How do we have that right? We don't. The industry changes. Life changes. I, I as much as people uh, pine about the industry, I have so many friends that are so busy. Mm. The industry just changes, as you know. Mm-hmm every couple of years. So I thought it was really profound of my dean to to have such a compassionate opinion about uh, the youth of America that, hey, we're not shutting any doors on these kids. We're going to let them make their decisions on their own. Mm. It'll be educated decisions. 
I think that's true of any artist because people ask me that. They'll say, well, what do you say to a young artist, young musician, anybody who's pursuing anything in the arts? I never discourage them. They're going to find out. They're going to find out if they can do it. No question. That's it. So why should I say don't go for it? The the funny thing, too, is I really think in the big picture um, that going to a university it's not really about a specific degree track for the most part. Um, essentially what college is about is about learning how to learn. And if you look at the people that graduate with engineering degrees, business degrees, very few people actually do exactly what their degree is in uh, for a living. They will use those skills, of course. Uh, my father is an example. He has a couple degrees in engineering. He was never an engineer at all. He ran a company that handled engineers. Mm. So, you know, you see the tie-in. So would it to get a music degree, for example, is if you're not playing for a living, doesn't mean you're not a success. There's so many, as I said before, ancillary ways to make a living in music or in other careers where your music degree will help. So mm. I, I'm really a very, when I talk to parents and their kids are thinking about going to college, I say, please don't worry. You, you, you've, got a, you've got a kid who wants to, or a young adult who really is passionate about something, let them flourish because if they know how to follow their passion and have a good instruction along the way, they're going to be a success. Mm. Some of my best saxophone lessons were from my tennis coach. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. He's he's a great guy, and he uh, he's a drummer. But when I first started taking tennis lessons, I'm running around the court like a maniac. And he's like, "Hey Jeff, when you're teaching saxophone, or you see a young saxophonist and they play a million notes, what do you what are you thinking?" <laughs> and I was like, "Touche." And so I've learned to have faith in myself through taking up. I took up tennis like I don't know, maybe seven eight years ago, mm -hmm. and. Learning to practice slow mm -hmm. as a tennis player, intellectually, I always knew this as a musician, but I'm, you know, hey, I'm, it's a new discipline. I've been around for a while, but no, you still got to play slow. So it's, it's funny. I've really learned about that through tennis. Yes, and those are skills that people can apply, which I think is very applicable, especially to today, because the big complaint with a lot of people is that the millennials expect things fast, which is fascinating. So speak to that, too, because I know that... You, I was very touched. You had and really enjoyed it. Had me come in and talk about business, music business, for some of your students, and they were so engaged. And I didn't feel that any of them thought this was going to happen in a heartbeat. They seemed to know already that you had addressed that this takes time to have these things happen. You have to practice, and the process is what life is. We know that, but that it's convincing younger people that the going from A to Z, you need all that in between for the experience too, in a good way. You know, I never thought about that until you just brought it up in that light because all the students that I have, we've even talked about it. You know, we have jazz meetings and we have built-in jam sessions mm -hmm. in the curriculum. And aside from the playing, we we'll also talk. And in relating to them how I was coming up, I said, you know, all I really wanted to do was figure out a way that I could play every day all day mm -hmm. play, play the saxophone mm -hmm. and I see 30 kids nodding their head up and down I'm like they're in the same space that's where you know they're in the right place because really what they want to do is they they just want to figure out a way to be able to do what they do there's a great movie I bet you remember it it was a uh, field of dreams where right. it's this 
you know, it's fantasy where, where Kevin Costner builds this baseball stadium and all these old baseball players come back from the dead and, mm-hmm. and play. And he and James Earl Jones are driving down this street and some kid is hitchhiking and they pick him up. And it turns out this reincarnation of this baseball player mm-hmm. from the twenties. And he said, I'm trying to get to this town because I hear they'll get you a job during the day and you can play baseball <laughs> at night. And I was like, wow, you know, that's exactly what, what we think in our, in the jazz world. It's like, what can I do to facilitate me making this music. Which I think is a great thing for people who are going into other kinds of work too, that I love this because parents, I hope are listening to this, that, that, because I will tell them, they'll say, well, I'm really worried my son or daughter wants to be an artist or a musician or something. And I say, they're focused already. They have a passion. That's Mm -hmm. great. Right there, there's some motivation. And it's finding what you want to do. I feel in any career and figuring out the way to facilitate a way to get to do what you want to do. That's it. <laughs> that really is the meaning of it. We'll talk about this band because you said that quickly. I want our listeners to really understand that this you created this record label so your students could record, so they could oh, yeah. know that process. And now everybody, because the technology is so so accessible and easier. You know, everybody's making CDs, but that isn't what you're doing. You're doing it at a very high level and not just saying, yeah, you've played for a week. Now let's record. You take these students, your top students, talk about that process, how you do it and how you put these CDs together. Cause you also, the covers are so beautiful. I'm thinking of your superhero. I have to say that's my, that's, (laughs) that's my favorite cover. And it's so funny. You have the guys dressed up and, um, and you had one of your students, one of the students did the cover. One of our guys in our IT in the college of arts and humanities, Matt Dunn did all the artwork. Yeah. So he got that experience and how this is all put together. So talk about that. Let's start with this CD. Cause I happen to say I have a soft spot for this CD. (laughs) I really love it. I love it. So uh, the bat swings. I was I was uh, on the road somewhere with a great trumpet player friend of mine, Mike Mossman, and I said, you know, Mike, I was on on a short vacation with my kids, and I bought the the old Batman movie from the '60s, and thinking, okay, you know, to write a passage. My my youngest son, I think, was about three. And my older son was oh, about eight or nine. Anyway, we're watching Batman, you know, and he like he's you know all the Batman stuff you can imagine. <laughs> and, <laughs> Back and, when Batman was Batman. And, I, and it was great because my youngest was talking about himself in the third person that he was Batman and oh. his brother was Robin. Oh. And, but then I'm listening to the incidental music. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is Nelson Riddle. I forgot. <laughs> and it's so great. So anyway, I'm, I'm hanging out. Mike and I are on the road somewhere. I said, Mike, listen to this. Cause I, so I bought the, the soundtrack. I go, I want to do an album with this. Are you in? And he listened, he goes, oh, this will be great. Well, Mike is such a world-class writer. And I got uh, my buddy Harry Allen to write a couple charts. I wrote a couple. And a wonderful arranger, Mark Taylor. Mark was the funny one. Mark used to write for one of the big military bands, I believe. It's the Airmen of Note. I apologize if I get that wrong. But he's a world-class arranger. At any rate, Mark thought I was pulling his leg when I said, hey, I want you to write a couple arrangements from the Batman TV show. And (laughs) his response was was uh, guarded, let's say. (laughs) But eventually everybody came together. Harry and Mike were just so on board with this. They got it. And the kids didn't really know about Batman. Oh, they didn't? Not 
They know like the the they know modern, the more recent one, yeah, the darker ones, which is ones. so dark. Yeah, well, and I didn't realize. I always thought that the Adam West one was the original. It's not. There was one that was around World War two maybe just afterwards the original batman was really dark oh, and i didn't know that but i was like well we are we are following we're going for the cartoony adam one, right? west burt ward in fact we did a big show at the dr phillips center called the bat swings and we had all this music and what we did was we took dialogue from the tv show and had it interjected by our, our our school performing arts we have obviously music and theater and so theater was on board and we had batman and robin giving uh Dialogue between tunes. So anyway, natural progression, we hired arrangers to write for the band and then recorded. And then after these recordings were made, I think that was our fifth album for Flying Horse Records. Flying Horse Records has 11 albums out now, I think, to date. Uh, at any rate, we go through a full marketing push. The students understand the ancillary revenue streams, paying mechanical licensing, so on and so forth. So they walk away from a record date basically realizing, okay, we played on the record and that's just the beginning. Mm. Now we're having to do all this other groundwork. Mm -hmm. And so it's an active record label. We're making a couple records a year. We see revenue streams coming in. The, the students see how the revenue streams come in and that having a, a larger catalog is really where it's at. Mm. One record isn't going to do much, but when you start to accrue multiple titles and then handle those copyrights, that things can start to look a little better. So Mike Mossman... Uh, he was really excited about the record label. He's uh, at Queens College. He wanted Queens to consider starting a, a record label. And his thought was that because we're not at a make it or break it on every album scenario, that we kind of have kind of a broader, longer arc that perhaps we can actually even be part of redefining the record industry. Whether we're doing that or not remains to be seen. Of Redefining course. it in what regard? Well, in the in the record in the recording industry, of course, if you're if you're not making money on one record to the next. Mm. You could have, you know, there could be issues. Mm -hmm. And, of course, everything is so, so um, fluid right now. Mm -hmm. um, but we're, a lot, we're able to do things. You know, and that's what the university is about, Judy, is, is it's about trying things and, and examining options. But we're not under the gun um, for every record to make, make money. Now, mm -hmm. we're, we're fiscally responsible. We raise the money. The students raise money in our performances to pay for these albums, to make them happen. No, interesting. So, we're fiscally so they're involved from the financial get-go with this, with everything. Absolutely. Students, yeah. I, my goal, my ultimate goal as a teacher is to teach excellence, but also relevance. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important that these students have a real-world experience. But the irony is really what we're doing is just presenting uh, to the students, listen, there's, there's all these ways to skin this cat because ultimately the industry is going to change by the time they're my age, mm -hmm. probably three or four times. Mm -hmm. So the idea is to keep your radar on, have an understanding of what's going on, and keep your finger on the pulse, so to speak.
the Flying Horse Big Band from their CD, Batman Swings. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I'm talking with saxophonist and professor of jazz studies at the University of Central Florida, Jeff Rupert. Something I found interesting yesterday in your class when I did the business, music business, is as much as as much as things have changed, that there were a lot of things that were similar in terms of reaching out. There's different ways to reach out, but some of the questions I got from your students, you know, now it's called branding. We didn't think about branding, but we were branding ourselves. We were getting a reputation, which is what branding yourself is. And so that comes back to what you're saying about that things will keep changing, but these things still apply, and you're giving them a way to discover how to make things apply, how to use these skills, and how to think beyond just, I want to be a musician. I just want to play. And I think that's really important. It is important. I also think as, as a player who's also a, a teacher, I think it's important to have a conduit to the real world for the students. Mm, like mm-hmm. they can see a connection. The, the, I think the scary, the, the scariest thing w- would be for someone to get a degree and then, okay, you're on your own, go, and they, they have no idea where to go. I think that's do. very common with schools. I mean, I have young musicians tell me that all the time. And I have the only, I have to say when I've done music, I haven't done a lot of music business classes, but when I've done it, it's been as part, yours is the only one where it was the sole reason I was there. Other people, I've been teaching all kinds of things. And then they'll say, what else could you do? You know, we've got you here for residency, or if we keep you three days and we get funding from different funding sources, which is very often, you know better than I, how the university works, we can get this department to fund. I said, well, I could do music business. They go, what a great idea. (laughs) I'm thinking that's where we probably should have started because Mm -hmm. I'm a touring musician. Well, you're a great musician. I could have had you teach improvisation, had you teach piano, teach style and analysis. There could have been a ton of things. But what's fun about the university situation is we've moved to a model where we still concertize. We have some. We have a wonderful jazz festival. It's in our 11th year, I think, and we're making records. But also, I love it that I can have folks come by and give very specific. master classes and i knew yours like right away when i said hey hey uh ladies and gentlemen we're gonna bring in judy carmichael everybody was excited because they know your show jazz inspired they know you're playing and so they were very excited to get that inside track Mm -hmm. of what your career is like Mm -hmm. and as you saw i mean they're asking questions and uh we try to create an environment where they feel comfortable to ask questions but also realize that we really expect them to move on we've got a, a list of graduates that are doing really well as performers uh educators we have i have a bunch of students that are college professors now one who's the um doing quite a bit of studio work in los angeles he's i think he's the the principal trumpet in the hollywood bowl orchestra uh saxophone players doing great uh everybody so it's it's been fun to be in uh, uh develop a program that is is relevant mm-hmm. yes and that you see see them go on and have careers when so many people are talking about the That's an impossible thing to do, which is great. I want to ask you, because I know this, we talked before we were on mic, 
that your parents weren't musicians. And so I'm curious how you got into this. What was your first discovery of jazz and got you even interested in this? That's a good question. My, my, um, my mom's family was musicians, but it was almost a detriment because as a, a growing, up, growing up with a mother who's European, uh, it, was part, it, was, it was just part of what you do. You take music lessons. And I took piano and hated it as a kid. I didn't hate it. I just I didn't practice. But about fourth or fifth grade in band, we were allowed to pick an instrument. And you know, I said, I want to play the saxophone. And my mom and dad were like, no, you're going to play the French horn. And I'm still like, no, that's not going to happen. And I remember it was the first time I stood up to my parents. I said, no, this is what I'm going to do. And how old were you? Ten. Oh, I guess I was it. ten when I started. But uh, my parents, my dad, we, we would go. I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. Potomac, Maryland, and we also had a home in New Jersey. But we would go hear the National uh, Symphony Orchestra often. and So they um, were good listeners, chamber, yeah. Yeah, chamber music. But then also, like, I remember my dad took me to hear Count Basie when I was 10 years old. And they started with all of me, and the band started the first chorus you know, Basie's playing really quiet, and I have no idea what's about to come in. At the end of the first chorus, no. the band roars with ba do dot, you know, and I hid under my seat, and I was like, "Oh my god, I had no idea that was going to happen," you know. But then, totally moved. I remember the the uh, in the Washington Post the next day there was an article about the concert, and I cut it out. I think I still have that article today. In a scrapbook, yeah, and then um, and then, funny enough, I subbed for someone in the Basie band on a on a uh, short tour, and it was like one of the only times I was ever really nervous in my adult life. Aww. And I remember Bill Hughes came up to me. Oh, he's the best. This is when Grover Mitchell was still running the band, and and Bill comes up to me, and goes, "Hey, how you doing?" And uh, I go, "Oh, I'm good, I'm good." And and I go, "Man, I'm I'm actually kind of." Uh, taken this is like the very first jazz band i ever heard in my life and i can't believe i'm back i mean i'm i can't believe i'm getting to play with a band and bill says well when did you hear the band i said oh let's see i was 10 so it would have been 1974 he goes i was on the band then welcome back no <laughs> <laughs>
I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Our show is made possible in part with generous support from Steinway and Sons. Additional support is provided by Jazz Times Magazine, providing entertaining and provocative coverage of the jazz scene since 1970. On the web at jazztimes.com. For a schedule of upcoming programs, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can listen to podcasts of Jazz Inspired on Apple Music or wherever you get your podcasts and email us at info at jazzinspired.com or visit us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Stride Queen. November 19th, I'll be appearing at Steinway Hall in Manhattan for my annual champagne fundraiser for Jazz Inspired. I'll have special guests Ben Patterson, Harry Allen, Chris Flory, and many others. Visit the events page at judycarmichael.com for details. We are funded primarily by your donations, so please visit jazzinspired.com to chip in and keep us on air. 2020 marks our 20th year, and we need your support to make it all happen. Thank you. My guest, saxophonist Jeff Rupert, considers himself lucky that his parents exposed him to lots of great music when he was growing up. I remember when Buddy Rich came into town, we saw Buddy's band, and so my, my dad would take me to see jazz, and my mom and dad, would we would go to hear classical music, but I was just bitten at a young age. It, it's that cliche of, I didn't choose jazz, but jazz chose me. Yeah. It, was, it was the rhythm and the sound that got mm. me from the young age. The syncopation, I remember hearing Lester Young and how cool he sounded and his syncopation that I had no idea what syncopation was, but I knew, wow, but that's... you felt it. Well, and I think on a sociological thing, for me, Judy... It was, I could tell jazz was about self-expression and I was a little boy who wasn't really in an environment where I was feeling like I was expressing myself and I thought, wow, this is how I can express myself.
Saxophonist Jeff Rupert on Strange Meadowlark from his CD, Imagination. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. One of the things that I admire about your recording catalog is your obvious connection to the heart of the matter, what you're recording and and what you want to express, but you're also... You have some really lovely themes and how you bring things together. And a lot of people that do that, it feels like the theme, the music is forced into the theme. And yours is a beautiful marriage that here's a lovely theme. You're a poetic guy and you're well-read and all of these things, so you, you think in this way, but you put it together in a lovely way that I think helps people come to the music which is an ongoing conversation we have in jazz because jazz can be challenging for people to start in. They don't all have that 10-year-old bassy hit. <laughs> They're not lucky that they get to hear the bassy band because that's going to hook everybody. But I'm, I'm really fascinated about that. Talk about some of your CDs. I'm holding up one and I'm showing you because I love it so much. Talk about this, how you came up with the concept and all of it and recorded it. I love it. I really think that music is part of the humanities and the humanities is about the human experience, Judy. And I'm too old to think of this as like varsity jazz, like worrying about playing a great solo or a million notes or any of that nonsense. I really want to paint a picture. So I remember I was in Barcelona and, uh, it was not a good time for me. It was maybe, I don't know, 25 years ago. And I went to the Picasso Museum, like just something to do. And I'm not a big Picasso fan. So it's not like I was hunting it out, but it, it really moved me. I was like, wow, this artwork is great. And I started thinking what, what was great about it. Like what was it that was moving me? And it wasn't approaching it from any kind of analytical position. It was just that it was moving me. So as a musician, it started to affect how I, I feel about presenting music. So anyway, we're getting ready to make a record with a group I have called the jazz professors. And I said, you know, I love impressionism and, um, I'm a big fan of Ravel. Uh, I really like Scriabin, uh, Debussy, of course. And I look at it as kind of like that music. It's there's, there's some chromaticism in it for the, the lay person. For me, it's kind of like an oyster, uh, to get a pearl, you have to have a little bit of sand in that oyster to make the pearl. No, no sand, no pearl. Too much sand, the oyster dies. And that's the way I see or hear music. Like it's got to have a little bit of rub in it, or it's boring. If it's got too much in it, it's boring because it loses gravity. So I'm very interested when when music has a balance of 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 that rub mm. and lyricism. Mm. So it's very congruent to the artwork of Monet, so on and so forth. So I said, guys, let's make a, let's make an album around the artwork of, of Monet. And Monet has that, that, that there, well, he's part of the group that, uh, it, it was called en plein air. In other words, the art that was made, you're, you're, you're painting, you're painting the same thing, but in different light, it looks different. So I, I assigned all the guys, uh, involved in the record date, 
I gave them paintings. Mm. I said, hey, Mike Mossman, I want you to write a song on um, San Maggiore, uh, another one on the, uh, the Red Door. I did The Woman with a Parasol. Richard Drexler is a big fan of trains, so there's a beautiful painting that Monet did of the train station in Paris. Mm. And, uh, and I think he called it Follow the Monet, which was really <laughs> bad title. <laughs> Oh, but, that's great. I, wa- I want to do a CD with that title. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, I, that's great. I think what it did was before we got in the studio, it brought everybody together emotionally about what we wanted to do. So another record I did, um, this is my own, well, the Jazz Professor is a group I lead, and then I have my own uh, project I, I recorded with Veronica Swift. She was, I think, 20, 21 when we did it. It's called Let's Sail Away. Well, as a kid, my fondest early memories are I had this paper out and I bought a sailboat with my paper out money. I remember it cost $678. Isn't that funny how we remember the exact amount? I I have things like that, too. Yeah, and it was a sunfish sailboat. And I used to, when we were in New Jersey, I used to, in the morning, I would go out and walk to the bay and sail my boat and come back and um, have lunch, maybe go sail again for a couple hours, come back and then practice my saxophone. And then at night, um, watch the Yankees on TV with my dad, you know. And so that was when I was 10, and I'm, 55 now, and if I could get back to sailing all day and practicing I was going to say, this sounds awfully good. Watching the Yankees, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's to me, that's a, a that's great life. That's pretty great. So that record, that record was revolving a bit around the ocean and sailing. Uh, you know, I, uh, I live in Orlando, and uh, being a, I consider myself a Jersey boy, um, but I'm in Orlando, and this is home, and I've got two boys, and we bought a boat, and we go out on the water, and it's it's great. And, and, you know, 30 years ago, I think I can't do that. I got to be home practicing. And now I'm like, no, well, we got to go out 
and we get out on the boat and you know, Judy will go down to the keys and I'll take the boat nine or 10 miles offshore. Can't see land and it's beautiful. And we'll go diving and my kids dive in the water and we're looking, you know, fish at a coral reef. And it's so much like playing to me because it's beautiful, but also the father in me or the guy who's driving the boat is like, okay, um, is the boat going to start again when we get back up? <laughs> and are we going to be stuck out here, you know, 10 miles offshore? So to me, it's, it's a lot like playing. In other words, like there's the beauty, but also the danger. And if there is no danger, you're not taking chances. You need to take chances as a jazz musician. You need to take chances in life. I got to take care of my kids. But hey, the, the, when I have a, an eight-year-old jump off the boat and he nonchalantly looks up at me dad and says, dad, there's a Goliath grouper under the boat. <laughs> and I go, okay, whatever. And I go over and I'm, oh my God, it's a six-foot grouper staring at my four-foot son. And uh, it's a moment you'll never forget. You know? <laughs> dad, we need a bigger boat. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that before. My guest, saxophonist Jeff Rupert and vocalist Veronica Swift from their CD, 
Let's Sail Away. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. One of the things we do at the house here, which is kind of fun, is at dinner, the kids, I have an LP collection, and the kids pick an LP every night, and we listen to an LP every night while we have dinner. Mm. And uh, of course they're picking, you know, my, my, I have one son who loves Johnny Griffin. So we, sometimes we have dinner where everything is way up tempo. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, another, another uh. son who loves Cootie Williams. So we, which we get a lot of Duke Ellington and Cootie Williams at dinner. But well, at least your kids have good taste. with Sam Rivers for seven, ten, I think I worked with Sam for 15 years. I can't remember, but I learned so much from Sam and on, I'm on the bandstand, you know, in other words, the bandstand for me is like the classroom. And then the classroom has been like the bandstand for me. Uh, UCF, because we have a brand new program, it's 10 years old. We have a different kind of curriculum. We don't teach improvisation, which is central to jazz in an improvisation class. Our students go through the university in like a quartet or quintet setting. It's kind of like how Juilliard, you go and play in a string quartet for four years. Mm. And you develop this sound with other people and realize and learn that this group environment is so crucial. So we're teaching improvisation. I think the, the pedagogues call it integrated teaching or integrated learning where we're playing and teaching at the same time. What I'm getting at is that I think that for me, the bandstand has been as much school as uh, school is, and mm. school as much is as much the bandstand as uh, the bandstand is. What we've learned is that the kids get so good as a group that when they leave the school, they expect every group they play in to play at that level. These kids are playing together for eight hours a week for four years. So by the time they get out of school, they are really tight. And so when they go and play with another band, they know manners, bandstand manners. They know how, and and they expect it to be that good. So there's a ripple effect on that, in that how they're treating other people. And I know it took Mm -hmm. me a long time to recover from my first session because I had all these great guys on the first session. And I thought, oh, this is the answer. I was so naive. You know, I just need guitar and sax. And I wasn't thinking it's Freddie Green and Marshall Royal, you know. And then I went out and nothing worked. (laughs) I thought, you know, in Red Calendar, Harold Jones and I was so blessed to have that be my first session. And I thought, well, so this is the answer. You just get an instrumentation like that. Well, that took me 10 years to recover. <laughs> I'm still recovering from you saying Marshall Royal. You know, you've got, that's my, my youngest son's biggest hero is really? Marshall. He, he's listening to Marshall and Johnny Hodges. Oh, because people don't talk about Marshall that much. It's really interesting. He loves Marshall.
Marshall Royal on sax, Harold Jones drums, Red Calendar bass, Freddie Green guitar, and I'm on piano from my CD and Basie Calder stride. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. My guest is saxophonist and professor of jazz studies at the University of Central Florida, Jeff Rupert. As I think back, you know, all the folks that I've been lucky enough to, to be around, my teachers at Rutgers, Ted Dunbar, Bill Fielder, Kenny Barron, I learned so much from them and how gracious they were. Hard, too very hard but that's that to me that's a term that's that's a respect thing like these guys were hard on me hard on us i think because they cared a about the music but they also believed in the the students there and i saw that as such a respect in hindsight i see that as such a, a respectful endeavor that they were so uh fastidious with us getting better and then working with guys like you're mentioning marshall and then uh, for me, you know, working with Mel Torme and Benny Carter and Frank West and these guys, a lot, a lot of really wonderful musicians, but all the things that they never said, but they taught that I learned from them just by the way they acted. I love you saying that because it's, it's very significant. I agree with that. I, I appreciated that too. I didn't want people to flatter me and they didn't. I wanted them to be rough on me. I wanted them to say, you know, you should... Sounds good, but you need to work on this. That's how those guys acted. And I feel that it really, it was good for me. It was good for me. I didn't want people to, to flatter me. Jazz music really encompasses the American spirit for me so much of this idea of being an individual within a group setting. And you don't really realize that until you travel the world a lot, which you have. And you see that sociologically, it's, it's changing, but for a long time, that was really an American ideal. I was surprised as a kid traveling to Europe and then Japan that rock and roll was seen as British music, which surprised me very much. I would have thought that embodied the American spirit because, of course, it comes from rhythm and blues. And it doesn't. Jazz does. The, the jazz music embodies the American spirit to folks who aren't from here. And it's because of that free-thinking spirit of a jazz musician, being an individual within a group setting. And those musicians that you were working with really embodied that. And then if you're sensitive and listen and pay attention, you're, you learn so much without anyone ever telling it to you verbally like that. And mm. I'm, 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 that had such a big impact on me. Mm -hmm. I, I, um, I, you know, someone said, it's not my original idea, but that uh, there was someone who had said once that jazz is, it, someone was having a hard time putting it into words. And a musician said, well, the fact that you're having a hard time quantifying with the English vocabulary what jazz is about doesn't mean that jazz is falling short. It means the English language is falling short, Ooh. that the communication is happening at such a high level that there are no words to describe what's going on. And I think about that quite often. I think there's a lot of truth to that. And as a player, you know, things you, you and I have talked about playing regarding time, the emotional outcome of a performance, those things, it's very, it's very tan intangible and it's an abstraction and it's such a fascinating world to be in as a player and to connect to listeners and then to teach and 
realize that you're teaching kids, I mean, some very serious critical thinking and, and um, dealing with abstractions. You know, jazz musicians deal with such abstraction. And we, you forget it, I forget it, because we're doing it eight days a week. But you look at it, you step back a little bit. Uh, next week, I'm giving a lecture uh, on, at the university for, a, a, it's called the Learning Institute for Elders. There's about a thousand uh, retired folks that come to the university every Tuesday. And it's unbelievable. These folks are so hungry for information. And, and the lecture I'll be giving next week is on women and jazz. And it's amazing how you go that little extra mile and you could connect so much with people. Um, when they see Billie Holiday playing with Lester Young on Fine and Mellow, and when Prez jumps up after Ben, Web ben Webster takes his great solo, and Prez is really sick already at the time, and he jumps up and plays the most beautiful blues, and Billie is looking at him the way she looks at him. What I love about it is being able to set that up to someone who doesn't know who Billie Holiday is or Lester mm. Young is and give him a little bit of pre-roll. Mm -hmm. and explain it and they see that and they see the love between the two of them it's 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 plain as day that isn't um anything but a, other than a spiritual love those kinds of things when people can grasp on the intangible things that they hear through music to me are very valuable and again points to this idea that music is a part of a much bigger picture it's about the humanities and that humanities is about the human experience so this, this abstraction to me is very, it's something I, 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 I realize is very important to address. My man don't love me. He treats me oh so mean. My man, he don't love me. He treats me awful mean. The lowest man that I've ever seen. Jeff, I have wanted to sit you down on Jazz Inspired for I don't know how many years, and we finally did it with me being here. This worked in your town, too. It worked. Thanks. What's, what's your name again? <laughs> Dad, we need a bigger boat. <laughs> <laughs> Judy, you're the best. Thank you you're so much. Best. I, I so, so admire what you're doing and what you're doing at the university. And with the university, this is the greatest place. It's a real, I advocate for your university and how innovative and... It's a great place to be. It really is. Orlando is not just about Disney people. You know, we, we didn't really talk about it, but, you know, I think the kids that grow up here, they they see that, and there's such a strong undercurrent of support for the arts in Orlando because kids are growing up in this environment. So it's like, a, I don't mean it in a negative way, but it's like a backlash. Yeah. No, I can see it. They're going to be shocked when they get to the rest of the world and realize that, that a lot of communities don't support the arts like this. So I think Orlando is a real model for that. And no, this is not being underwritten by, by Orlando. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Lots Thank of fun. you, Judy. Lots of fun for me. Thank you so much. 
You've been listening to my conversation with Jeff Rupert. I hope you'll join me here next time when I talk with another creative person about how jazz has inspired their life and work. I'm Judy Carmichael, the host and producer of Jazz Inspired. My production engineer is Curtis Heidolf. You can download free podcasts of Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired from all the usual podcast platforms or listen at jazzinspired.com. Our opening music was Airmail Special, and the mid-break music is a smooth one from my CD, High on Fats and Other Stuff. The closing music is Old Fashioned Love from my CD Trio. I'm on piano with Mike Hashem on sax and Chris Flory on guitar. Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is made possible with generous support from our listeners and from Steinway & Sons. I'll be appearing at Steinway Hall November 19th in Manhattan for my annual champagne fundraiser for Jazz Inspired. I'll have special guests Ben Patterson, Harry Allen, Chris Flory, and many others. Visit the events page at judycarmichael.com for details. We are funded primarily by your donations, so please visit jazzinspired.com to chip in and keep us on air. Any amount is appreciated. And 2020 marks our 20th year, and we need your support to make it all happen. Thank you. You can email us at info at jazzinspired.com or visit us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at StrideQueen. Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is also sponsored in part by Page at 63 Main in Sag Harbor, New York, serving organic microgreens and vegetables grown on their own energy-efficient indoor and outdoor aquaponic farms. Better taste, happier planet. Visit Page at 63 Main at opentable.com. For more information, visit jazzinspired.com or judycarmichael.com.